Okay, Second Peter chapter three. We are closing in really on the end of Second Peter in our study here, and we're going into some parts of eschatology, which is always a fun study on the end times. And uh, Peter's going to address some of that here in the verses yet before us in Second Peter three. But we are on verse three tonight. Where we were the last time, we're going to spend a little more time on verse number 3 and verse number 4, and uh, touch a little bit on 5, and who knows what else, we'll see. But uh, I'm pretty sure we're going to be through with Second Peter pretty soon. Um, I don't know exactly how many weeks pretty soon means, but it's coming. And uh, what we will do after that... Um, a few things, we'll have some others who will be able to come in and speak a few times too, but um, I think I'll be going to the 10-question format. We've done that usually during the summer times, where I give you an opportunity to put any question you want to be addressed. Uh, we take those up, and I pick 10. And they're just random, all right? I don't pick them because I like them or that one looks terrible and I pitch it or anything like that. I just pick ten out of the box without looking, and I put them in order without looking, and that's the ten I address for ten weeks. So the ten questions will be after this, but not tonight. If you want to think about it, it will be about a month and a half from now that we'll be ready for ten questions. And that should get us closer to Christmas. Did you know? Only about a hundred days to go. Does that feel good? It's not that far off. We gotta start planning. Where's the choir? The choir should be practicing already. Not yet? It's coming. I know it's coming. Okay, here we go. Second Peter three, three, four, and a touch of five. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. It goes on to talk about it being destroyed as well. But we'll get to that soon enough. Heavenly Father, help us tonight as we go through this passage to again see what you want us to know about the days actually we're living in. And uh, help us to be prepared for these things. Help us in our study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, now, Peter, as you know, I've said this, uh, is in the, in the mode of reminding. This morning I spent a little time on remember. Uh, Peter was very good at saying, I want to remind you, I want to remind you, I want to remind you. And he said that earlier in verse number 1 and 2. Beloved, this is the second time I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. Folks, the information I'm telling you here tonight is not something we should be surprised to read. Some reason we forget. And we talked about that a little bit this morning. But we need to remember what God has says about, said about the end times. Because these things are happening around us. 
They're not anything that's launched way off. When I was a kid, I used to think, oh, that's a million years away. It's not my worry. I don't have to think about it and such like that. But the older I get, the more I see around me, and I think, you know what? We're in that day. We are in that day. And the Lord Jesus is going to come soon. I'm pretty sure of that. And I'm looking forward to it. And according to Peter's words, when we read in all this, verse 13 says, We are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's going to be a great place to live, folks. And that day is coming. So, since all these things are true, the whole point for prophecy is written there in verse number 14. Why do we get this information? Is that God wants to scare us to death? Uh, God wants to, uh, you know, just satisfy our curiosity? Why does he tell us about what's coming? It's so that, in verse 14, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless, and blameless. Of all the people on this earth, we believers ought to have peace. It's kind of hard when you read the headlines. <laughs> but we are the ones that ought to have peace. And that's what it says here. So that you, knowing these things, will be found by him in peace. Not in pieces. There's a difference. In peace. He'll be, find us in peace. And spotless and blameless. And that's, that's motivation to live holy lives in the fact that these things are being fulfilled in our lifetime. We're seeing them. And maybe the Lord will delay. And maybe it will be our children, our grandchildren, who will get to enjoy the moment when Jesus Christ comes again. You will too, by the way. You will too. Do you know in the rapture, all of us will be taken? That's what it says, right? Whether we're awake or we're asleep, we shall all be gathered together with Him in the air. You're not going to miss the bus. Right? That's the fact. We're all going to be raptured as believers in Christ. We will be in it. And I think that's pretty exciting. So, how do we live right now? We live in light of the fact that he's coming again. Now, that I set up for you on purpose because look at their question in verse number 4. The mockers have come, and with their mocking, they are asking, where is the promise of his coming? Now, this is the first thing we need to know. Verse number 3. The first thing we need to know is, in the last day, mockers will come. That we talked about last time we were together. They will come. They will come. Mockers will come. They are the ones who are good at scoffing. We use the word deriding sometimes. They make fun of things. They think it's great. Matter of fact, they like to do that in groups because it makes them all look better. By themselves, it doesn't come off quite the same. But as a group, they mock in groups. They get together. Notice this is plural. Mockers will come. And many times people do things in groups that they wouldn't do by themselves. And these mockers are active. And they are making fun of truth. They're making fun of it. We, we have people today who, who make fun of truth all the time. They, they think it's an object of laughter. The things that the church believes, they say, are you kidding? That's not real. That's something Grandpa would have believed. 
you know, one of those kind of things. That's not, that's not uh, modern. That's not according to science. That's their favorite phrase now. Have you noticed that? That's not scientific. It's like, well, who created science? I think God did, didn't he? Yes. But see, they mock, and they have fun. They're mocking, and they're very, they, they get a laugh out of mocking. But they mock. They're mockers who mock. This is an interesting picture, because when you study the scoffer in scriptures, you could go through Proverbs, there's a lot of verses on scoffers. You could go into Psalm chapter 2, it talks about those who scoff. And such like that. What, what they're doing is, in effect, they're daring the Lord. They're doing something. And all the way, oh, he's not coming, he's not coming. Watch what I can do. And they, they laugh about it because they continually mock. We're going to see a little bit more of that. But one more characteristic of them. They not only are mockers who are mocking, but it also says in verse 3 that their character is they pursue desires. Lust is the word here. Uh, violent desires. They're, they're the chapter 2 kind of guys we've been studying all the way through here. Uh, their guide in life is themselves. They follow after their own lust. Their own lust is all they want. Whatever satisfies them, they, they go to wherever their passions lead. They be, lead. They behave in line with their own lust. They're governed by their passions. They're ruled by their evil desires. There's all kinds of interesting phrases that translations have used. But the Phillips translation, he said, men whose only guide in life is what they want for themselves. Have you seen anybody like that? They're all over the place. People living for themselves. And that's a picture of what to expect in the end times, is mockers who live this way. Now, the world is not going to have trouble with people living like this, because it will fit them. What's frightening, as Peter's addressing this, is the potential for Christians to follow that. If the church gets comfortable with mockers, what's left? We don't want to adjust to that lifestyle. We don't want to be like that. But he's warning us that they're coming. They will come. And what they say is what we're going to look at, especially right now in verse number 4. Where is the promise of his coming? That is not a question of curiosity. They don't want you to educate them in the answer. They're not looking for the answer. This is mockery. This is not trying to educate oneself. They are mocking the truth of God's Word. They are mocking it. Where is the promise of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? They think that asking that question leaves you at a disadvantage. When people today argue over things like the rapture or any part of eschatology, they always set it up to make it sound like you have no idea what you're talking about because you can't prove it. They said, if you could set a date, we'll believe you. Is there a way to set a date? No. So we don't believe you. All right? You could go almost anywhere in theology and work with this, but that's, it's what mockers do. They mock creation too. They mock, they, well, it's not scientific, is it, to believe that God was out there in no place and created some place out of nothing. That doesn't make sense to them. And so they mock it. 
But they're coming with their mocking, and they are saying, they are saying, they are saying. If I get you the, the tense of this word, it's continuous. They don't let up. They're constantly, not casually, and even not occasionally, but regularly, constantly mocking with this phrase, because they think they caught you off guard. Where is the promise of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? Where is the promise of His coming? They go on and on and on with questions like that. Now, it follows a strategy. It's the old strategy we use like this. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. That's how you annoy people too, by the way. One time, one time, one time, one time, one time. Good old uh, Lot. Do you remember his story? Lot, Abraham's nephew, who decided, well, Sodom and Gomorrah area looks really nice. I think I'll go pitch my tent near there. And by the time we see the rest of his story, he's living in the town. And what does Scripture say about this poor guy? Do you call him poor? I don't know if you do. You might say, well, I don't know. He got himself into trouble. But back in chapter 2, look what it says about Lot in verse number 8. For by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, yes, he was called that, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. It never let up. Every morning he'd look out and say, oh, they're still there. In the afternoon, oh, they're still there. In the evening, oh, they're still there. Every single day, he was tormented by that. Would you leave? <laughs> Steve would. I'd pack up. If mosquitoes were like that, what would you do? You'd go inside. You wouldn't stick around just because they just keep coming and coming and coming. And that's what I picture verse number 4 in chapter 3 to be like. The nature of their mocking is so continuous and so annoying that they plan to wear you down. And that's what they did with Lot back in his days. They wore him down. His righteous soul was tormented by them day after day after day. What's a counter to that? Just the nature of what Peter's doing to remind you Time after time after time, the truth. Because our world is going to bombard us with the same news in the same style over and over and over and over until we start to buy it. Aren't they? Isn't that what they do? How much better if you hear Scripture, and then hear Scripture, and then hear Scripture, and then hear Scripture, and it embeds itself in your heart and your mind. Peter says, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep reminding you. They have a strategy to wear you down. I have a strategy to build you up. And I'm going to keep it coming. Keep it coming. I'm going to remind you, remind you, remind you about God's Word. I love that strategy. That's obviously what I like to do. Is take you back to it over and over and over and over again. To keep building. Because throughout this week, the world just keeps tearing down, tearing down, tearing down. And we gather together and I say, let's build up. Let's build up. Let's be stronger. And this is, this is why, because mockers' strategy is that they never stop. They won't stop. You know what? The reality is they aren't going to stop. 
They're going to keep on going. They're going to mock all the way into the tribulation period. They're going to mock all the way through the tribulation period. They're going to mock until Jesus Christ comes in second coming. That's the question they're asking. Where is the promise of his coming? They're going to keep mocking until he steps down on this earth. And then their mouths will be quiet suddenly. Because they don't believe he's coming. Let me just tell you this. The question that they're asking is a loaded question. They're not asking you to answer that. They're asking you to not believe it. That's what they want you to do. They don't want you to believe it. They're not saying, oh, please tell me, when is he coming? Where's the promise of his coming? Take us to scripture and teach us on his coming. Tell us everything we need to know about his coming. That's not what they're asking. The nature of their saying this is really a question that God's word is true. That's what they're doing. They are asking whether or not God's word is true. They question God's existence. Who, after all, made the promise? God did. Well, it can't be true. Where's the promise of his coming? I don't see it. I'm looking around. I don't see it anywhere. He must not be real. They question his authority. Does God have the right to say what he says? Does God's word have authority that we can believe it? Oh no, I don't see the answer. I don't see it anywhere. He didn't come. Can't be true. Now, in case you're wondering, they are talking about his second coming. Not the rapture. They don't care about the rapture. I mean, that, that's nothing to them. The second coming of Christ. What does scripture tell us it's all about? Why is Christ coming the second time? To reign, set up his kingdom. Do they want competition for their little kingdoms? Nope. Why else is he coming? He said so. That's a perfect answer. Okay, yes, but what's a third reason why he's coming? <laughs> Judgment. He's coming to judge. The first came, coming was to save. The second is for Judgment. These people are in trouble. And he's coming again. And the New Testament writers talk about his coming again in order to, to fire up a hope within us or a godliness within us to live in light of his coming. It's building in us this fuel to, to live out our Christian life. And, and when they come up and they mock the very thing that drives us, his coming. They mock the very thing that we believe in in Scripture. They deny in all that that a holy life is necessary. Because if He's not coming, why should I live holy? If He's not coming, who am I accountable to? No one. So guess what they're trying to erase? Accountability. That's the best way to get rid of God in their minds. I mean, what else do you do? If there's no God, then who, why, why worry about it? Why live as if there is a God when you can just go and do whatever you want? There's no God to judge you. There's no God to worry about. He's not going to punish you. There was a group that used to believe that, believe it or not, and they were religious. They were called deists. 
The deists thought that God had just kind of wound up the clock in creation and then walked away and just let it run. They, they believed that their God did not have any intervention with you at all. Oh, they believed in a God, yes. But did he care for me? No. Does he care about my life? No. I'm just going to live however I want. Now, most of them were religious kind of people. We read about them and say, oh, that was a great person. That was a great person. That was a great person. But they lived as if there wasn't a God who cared for them at all. That was some of the religions that we had in previous days. No divine intervention. Nothing is God doing. And so, if you take that to the extreme, you can live however you want because the Lord is not coming. We used to ask the question, do you want to be caught doing that? I mean, that's a good motivated question on how you live, right? Do you want to be caught doing that? You know, when the Lord comes... And that might help people understand the picture that these people do not believe he's coming. So they live like it. They question God's existence. They question his authority. They question even the identity of Christ because whose coming is it? It's Jesus Christ who's coming. And they question his authority. They mock his authority. He's coming to judge. Oh no, he's not a judge. He wouldn't judge me. He doesn't judge anybody. He's all love. He's all mercy. He's all forgiveness. He doesn't judge anybody. He never will. Did you read that in the Gospels? What happened the day he walked into the temple with a whip? I think that was a little bit of judgment, wasn't it, Ed? I mean, it looked like it. You're upturning tables. You're, you're scattering the, the money all over the place. You're pretty upset. That was just a small taste of what he can do. They question his identity. They question who he is. They mock his authority. They say, oh, he's not going to judge. He's not going to judge. That's not true. He's not like that. They question our doctrine. They question our doctrine. You know, most of what you can read in chapter number 2, when it talks about all these heresies that they believe in and what they're doing and stuff, comes down to a simple thing. They just deny the truth of Scripture. And included in that is the fact that Jesus Christ will return. Do you want to know the number one way to rattle a New Testament church? It happened. Somebody told the Thessalonians, Oops, you missed the rapture. Boy, did that set them off. They didn't know what to do about it. You know, some of the greatest passages on the rapture are taught in First and Second Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter number 4. It says, You yourself know full well. And he starts to describe the rapture. In cha- all the way through chapter 4 and into chapter 5, he's talking to them about the rapture and the second coming of Christ and the tribulation period. And he said, you guys know all this. And he's going on and on and on in First Thessalonians 4. Let me show you something. Just back up to the passages. First Thessalonians, that's before Timothy. First Thessalonians, we could go through chapter 4, we could go through chapter 5 and talk about the rapture, we could talk about the tribulation, and what Paul taught them, he taught them and taught them and taught them on those topics. But I want to show you something rather interesting. You're fond Thessalonians? Turn to chapter 2, I mean, book 2, Second Thessalonians, and look at verse 2. 
two 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 two. All right, Second Thessalonians two two. He's talking to them regarding the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together with Him. That's the rapture. That you are not be quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed either by the Spirit or a message or a letter, as if it's from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Somebody got a message out to them by the time Second Thessalonians was written that, uh, you missed it, rapture occurred, now you're in the tribulation. And they said, oh no, how did we miss it? Why are we in the, t- would you hate waking up in the morning and finding the headlines, welcome to the tribulation? That would bother you, wouldn't it? If you read all those left-behind stories or you watch the movie, you say, oh, what a terrible thing to be here the day after. Well, that's where the Thessalonians were. They thought that was true. Let me show you something. You're still there. Go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3. 1, 3. Paul is commending them. He says, there are three great characteristics of you. I constantly bear in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of God the Father. So you got faith, love, and hope. He says, I really admire that about you guys. You amaze me with these characteristics. Go to Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, I want to commend you on this. I always, always uh, give thanks to God for you, brethren. And it's only fitting because of the faith is greatly enlarged and your love for each other has grown even greater. And what's missing? Hope. What was shaken? Hope. Their hope was shaken because somebody gave them a false report. They said, Christ had already turned. You missed it. And that's the goal of the mocker. The scoffer is to take away your hope. If you don't have hope, how are you going to live tomorrow? Or the next week? If you have no hope for the future, if you have no hope at all, how are you going to live and keep going? Is it not the fact that we have a home in heaven that we look forward to? Is it not the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again? Is it not the fact that someday we're going to live in a place where righteousness dwells? Doesn't that spur us on? To say, I could live through another day here, another week here, another month here, another year here. But I know my future. And live for that. But when they take that away from you, what do you have? The scoffers are going to mock his coming. They're going to mock his coming. They go against the things that we believe in. This is one way it's said. John Calvin wrote this 500 years ago. It is a dangerous piece of scoffing when they cast doubt on the resurrection of the last day. Because if this is taken away, nothing is left of the gospel. The power of Christ is drained away and all religion is destroyed. Satan directly attacks the throat of the church when he destroys faith in the return of Christ. He goes right here for us. Because he knows that's what keeps us moving. If Why did Christ die and rise again if not to redeem us and to gather us sometime or other to himself in eternal life? Try quoting John 3.16 without any reference to the future. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Take away the rest. What do you got? No hope. He gave his son, but what did that do? What's the rest of it? Whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You see what they're trying to take away from you? They're mocking the promise. They're mocking the doctrine. And what's interesting is, every time they take away doctrine, they allow for all kinds of evils to happen. Because no longer are people accountable before God. This is what Warren Wiersbe said. If your lifestyle contradicts the Word of God, you must either change your lifestyle or change the Word of God. Guess what the mockers do? They change the Word of God. They mock at the truth. They laugh at the truth. So Peter says, know that they're coming. They're going to mock everything you believe in. Where is the promise of His coming? It can't be true. He's not here. We didn't see Him. Where is He? Don't see Him. They go on to add, it's, every sense of followers fell asleep. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. And they maintain it. They maintain it. They keep it. They keep it. They keep it. They don't get rid of that. They also set their, their, their nature. Say, let me see if I could say this correctly. They set nature against God. They set nature against God. That phrase I just read you. All continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You say, oh yeah, they must believe in creation. Ask them if they do. Do they believe in a God of creation? No. They think it happened by chance. That this world is operating by chance. It's just been thrown together. It's one of those accidental freaks of, of chemistry. That suddenly, here we are. We all have brains and we have all systems inside of us that are so complicated. And yet they say, oh, that was just an accident. You know, it just happened. They mock the creation story. They mock the end story, too. Isn't that interesting? It's kind of like bookends. They want to deny God's word on creation, and they want to deny God's word on the completion as well. They mock both ends of it. But notice, when they're talking about the end, the first thing they bring up is the beginning. See, I know it's not true there because it's not true here. Ever since the beginning, there's nothing that ever changes. You know what they forgot about? A flood. They forgot about Sodom and Gomorrah. They forgot about all these other events that have taken place in history. Because, oh, that's in your Bible. That's not history. So they erase all the things that have already happened on this world to show that God is sovereign. They deny it. According to chapter 2, Peter said already in verse number 2, or verse number 1, is that they, they produce or introduce destructive heresies and deny the master who bought them. In the act itself, they're denying the one who bought them. Talk about salvation, talk about glorification, talk about the beginning, talk about the end, talk about any parts of it. And they don't believe it's true. The world just keeps going on and on and on. And we live in a day and age, believe it or not, folks, that our theologians are buying this too. They are trying to find a way to weave 
the ecology issues of our day, what people believe, you know, we got to maintain this earth and the green earth and the green groups, you know, and all these others. They're trying to weave that into theology because they don't really believe that God is going to keep his word and this world's going to be destroyed. They think this world's going to keep on going and we got to preserve it. We got to preserve it. We got to preserve it. I hate to say it, but it's being put into our eschatology now. In modern conservative circles, they're starting to say, no, God's not going to really destroy the earth. He's just going to refine it a little bit. He's going to remake it, refurbish it, going to change it a little bit. And I have a problem with that because it says in verse 7 that the present heaven and earth are being reserved for fire, keep kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. And then it goes on to say, in verse 12, that we're looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of all of the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. I don't think there's much left. And yet today we're starting to hear it more and more and more in our politics. We're hearing it in our government. We're hearing it in our economics. We're hearing it in our churches. That this world is just going to keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. And we don't need to concern ourselves with what's way out there. Today is the important day. It's very interesting. They're stripping away eschatology. All in the nature of creation. Creation is much more important. I mean, the world around us, that's much more important than believing what God had said. Because, you know, our fathers fell asleep thinking God was coming, and he didn't come in their day. And our grandfathers fell asleep in, in believing in his coming, and he didn't come in their day. So why should we fall for it too? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, that's what they said in verse 4, ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues on and on and on and on. And that's the nature of their mocking. They believe creation is a much better topic than God himself. It's kind of interesting to watch it, but those movements are active in our world today. They believe these things. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. We better figure out how to live down here. Nothing's going to change. So they're all worried about things. And the other extreme is, well, in 15 years, it's all going to be destroyed, right? So give us money. That solves everything. You know that? Just hand us money, and then it won't be destroyed in 15 years. I'd like to know how that works. Just a question on my mind. How exactly does that work? But Steve and I already know it. There's a thousand and seven years left. At least. At least. That's the tribulation period and the millennial period. The same earth is going to be here a thousand and seven years from now. That the Lord should come back today. It's still going to be here. I don't think it's going to fall apart. It's not going to warm up. It's not going to get cold. It's not going to change. And they're saying, well, we've got to take money from you to make it change or to fix it. But... At the same time, they're mocking our theology that Christ is coming. That's interesting. Just turn the, just turn the topic. Let's, let's move it away from your theology and let's talk about our economics. <laughs> That's where they take you. Because they, they're mockers. And they'll move you away every time from the truth. Because this is what they also do. They attack scripture. Look at their question. Where is the 
promise of His coming. Where do we find His promises? It's in God's Word. It's in God's Word. Are they asking you, give me a chapter, give me a book, give me a verse? No. They're saying, we don't believe the promise. We don't believe it's true. You know, that Bible you're holding was written by a bunch of men. Did you know that? Just a bunch of men, and they have faults too. And it just happened that they were, that, well, they were kind of killjoys, you know. They, they preached a restraint, and they wanted to take all the life out of life, and they wanted to strap us down. They, they wanted to spoil our pleasure. So they all got together and wrote this book. And it's kind of hard to get together when you live about a thousand years apart. And it's interesting how the first guy who wrote matches the last guy who wrote. And they don't, they don't stand impressed with God's word. They just say, oh, it's not true. And they think that solved it. They've been saying that for years, by the way. Way back in the early 1930s, a little bit before that, across in Europe, they were mocking God's word. It wasn't really written by God, it was written by men. Matter of fact, the five books of of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy was written by four different people. Did you know that? Even though Scripture says over and over it was Moses, they have four different people. One guy liked the word Elohim, which is the name for God. So we called him E. And one guy liked the word Jehovah, and he wrote about Jehovah, and he put that in his vocabulary. And we gave him the letter J. And they have a different, the one was a priest. Isn't that right? A priest. He wrote all these parts. And so we give him a P. And they go through and they divide up all of Scripture according to who did they think wrote this part. Do you know they believe there were three different Isaiahs who wrote the book of Isaiah? Do you know why? Because somehow his message changed. Well, yeah. Yeah. One side is judgment and the other side is mercy. Shouldn't it change? They, they jumped to all these wild conclusions that nothing could have been written before it happened because that would suggest a supernatural, miraculous nature of God's Word. So every event that was written about was written after it had happened, but written in such a way like it was prophetic. They, they stripped away the miracles, they stripped away the truth, they stripped away the authority of God's Word, they stripped away the activity of the Holy Spirit in putting all this together, and they said it was just a book written by men. That saturated the seminaries in the 1930s. Produced schools and followers that did not believe in God's Word, and they became the teachers of the next generation. And they wrote the books that we were forced to help. you got to read this book. And you read it and you go, Ugh! This is terrible! Why are we reading this? This isn't even true! And they said, Well, you got to know what history was like. Well, I don't want to read it. I want to read God's Word and believe it. Not everything that they've done to try to strip it. The M.R. Dehan, you've read some of his things, especially if you're a Daily Bread reader. You've seen this stuff before. But uh, he's speaks of a time where their self-appointed orator of meager education would get up in a city park to ridicule a nearby church. 
Its ministers had been preaching the imminent return of Christ for 50 years, and the man would stand up on his little box and say, Jesus is just as dead as anyone else. He never arose from the grave. That preacher just wants your money. Forget all that stuff about the second coming. Do whatever you want. Only heaven and hell you will ever get is what you make for yourself on this earth. That's what the mockers still say. This is it. This is all there is to it. If this is it, folks, we ought to be the most miserable people on this earth. That's what Corinthians says. If there's no hope, what is there? What is there? They said, ever since the fathers fell asleep, they died. They didn't get it. They didn't receive the promise. Doesn't Hebrews say something about that in chapter 11? These men died without receiving the promise. And he said, oh, that's so disappointing. Well, you have to read the rest of the verse. It's because they weren't looking for this world. They were looking for one that God was the architect of. They were looking forward to a new place. Their, their hope was not set on this world, but they confessed that they were strangers on this earth. And they lived like it. The mockers would never understand that, folks. They don't understand your faith. They don't understand your scriptures. They don't understand your Lord. They don't understand your God. Understand this. They are not believers. How could they possibly understand what you know? Because we talk about spiritual things, and spiritual things are only appraised by somebody who has the Spirit. They're going to mock. Peter says they're coming. They will mock. Don't be surprised if they attack your God and his existence, if they attack his authority, if they attack the identity of your Savior, Jesus Christ, if they question your doctrine, if they question that God's promises are even true, if they question the existence of life and its hope and its meaning. They're going to do that because they don't have hope, and they don't have faith, and they don't have Christ. And so they're going to mock Because that is the only shield they have when you come at them with the gospel. They have to deny it because they're accountable to it. You see? Don't stop sharing the gospel with the mocker. It's the only thing that will save them. Isn't that right? You could argue with them all day long. Go ahead, argue about creation, argue about the authority of God's word, argue about all those facts and figures and the future, and you still won't change your heart. They have to believe in Jesus Christ. It comes down to the same thing every time. So Peter is not telling the folks he's writing to, oh, you've got to beat them in the argument. You've got to win the debate. You've got to somehow nail them so that they realize they're wrong. He doesn't ever tell them to do that. He says they're coming. Christian, be prepared. They're coming. And as long as there's hope, guess what? Look at verse number 9. The Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, even the mockers. But that all should come to repentance. So many times when we read a passage like this, we get wrapped up in the horror of the idea of a mocker, don't we? I don't want to talk to a mocker. I don't want to, you know, I don't want that debate. I can't win. I don't know how to answer them. The Lord never told you to answer them. The Lord says, He's not willing for any of them to perish, but to come to repentance. Whose job is it to share Christ? Ours. 
And when they come mocking at us, and they, you give them the treasure that you have. You just say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. You want hope? It's in Christ. You, you, you want peace? It's in Christ. If you want eternal life, if you want forgiveness of sins, guess who it comes back to? Jesus Christ. Share Christ with them. Share Christ with them. That's what the Lord uses. His word, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it can change a life, even a mocker. If you read the testimonies of some people, you find out that long before they were ever saved, they were among the worst mockers. And the Lord changed their heart. And so, know that they're coming. Know what they're going to attack. Know what their mentality is. But realize this, they could only be saved by Jesus Christ. So share them. Let the Holy Spirit do the work. But don't let them scare you. Don't let them bother you. Because they could talk all day long and they still can't take away your hope. Can they? Because your hope is not in you, is it? It's in Christ. And that's one thing they can never remove. Because the Lord says, even in his simple statement to his disciples before he left, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that a great promise? I love that promise. I've told you this before, but when my kids were learning that verse in Awana Clubs many years ago, it was misquoted. And I believe it was my daughter, Carrie, who said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the edge. I said, ooh, that's different. <laughs> what happens on the other side of the edge? It doesn't sound good. But she met age. I'm sure she did. But it just stuck out in my head that day when she said, even to the end of the edge. Um, folks, he's with us. The mockers can't take that away from you. The truth, he can, they cannot take away from you. I just want to encourage you tonight, because I know this is a heavy thing, and you read it and you say, oh, I hate living in a day with mockers. Who wants a mocker to knock on their door tonight? Nobody? I don't think so. Who say, I don't want that. But know this first of all, beloved. In the last days are coming. And that's what they're going to do. And they forgot what it's all about. But we know. And we're going to talk more about this. Because there's wonderful promises woven all the way through this passage. And we need to be encouraged by it. So we're going to... And I hope that you found encouragement still with the understanding of what to expect. Okay, we're going to quit. Time's about up here. So let's close with a word of prayer here. And uh, enjoy your week. Okay? Evan, would you close us in prayer tonight, please?